Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, joining me on Postcards from a Dying World, my second time interviewing Sam J. Miller. Uh, Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I interviewed you on Dickheads, and I will point people to the Dickheads podcast interview. It was probably two years ago at this point about your cli-fi novel, Blackfish City, which was one of my top reads of the year, the year it came out, and also a dick-like suggestion on Dickheads. So we're probably not going to talk much about Blackfish City, but I highly recommend people go and check out that book, that interview. I love Blackfish City. It was great stuff. But today we're going to talk about um, your new book, The Blade Between. But starting off, let's let's give people a little introduction into how you got into science fiction and horror and what's your origin story with the genre. So I was a horror writer before I was anything else. Um, I've gone through a lot of periods where like I was trying to write lit fic and um, where I focused a lot of science fiction. But my origin story as a writer um, is when I was in second grade, no one liked me. Uh, I was very unpopular. I wasn't good at sports. The way I got people to talk to me was I would tell people that I had seen horror movies that I hadn't actually seen. Um, and I went to like a very small like farm school where most of the class didn't even own a television. I knew for a fact that they hadn't seen these movies either. So I could just make stuff up. Like I had seen like, you know, I like the video store box where I would have read the back of the box because I was obsessed with horror movies that my mom wouldn't let me see. Um, so then I would just make up these ridiculous stories and string people along from day to day. And so tell these stories that, that had nothing to do with the movie or very little to do with the movie and that people were like, you know, super into, and then they would, you know, like spend time with me. And so, yeah, my origin story as a writer is telling lies so people would like me and specifically horror, horror related lies. Um, I kind of want, uh, want a collection that's just um, Sam Miller's takes on 80s horror movies, like what you would have done with, with, with those stories. Do you I'm have sure any of them you remember that are very funny? I remember that I had I was fascinated by the box for Scanners, David Cronenberg's movie, mm-hmm. and that you know there's a picture of this guy with this like bubbly head. So I had explained, I had written like at great length, like the expl- my you know eight year old explanation for why his head was bubbly. Um, so <laughs> yeah, and I wrote I also wrote a, my first novel in second grade, which was called Invaders from Mars, and I'm sure that was super original as well. Right, right. Well, you know, uh, Jeremy Robert Johnson and I used to always joke because I have one of my earliest like childhood short stories, which was Night in the Life of a Common Werewolf was what that oh, was that's a good title. He had one that was hilarious. And actually there are little tiny bits of elements of the, his childhood short story in the loop, but he, he actually um, posted part of his childhood story on Facebook and it was hilarious. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get an anthology of all these established writers, like their most ridiculous childhood short stories. Uh, just don't edit them at all. Don't change them at all. Exactly how terrible they were. It would be great. Yeah, ideally, ideally, like pictures of the bad handwriting and misspellings. Um, well, as far as I'm aware, 
my mom threw away every, all my juvenilia, all my adolescent notebooks, all my, <sighs> my whatever, which uh, I, I'm sure I should be upset with her about, but I'm deeply grateful to her about because I'm sure it was terrible and there's no potential for any of it um, shaming me at any point in the future. Um, it's better off, it's better off dead. Right. So you got your start just making up these stories, but somewhere around there, you transitioned to, to actually like, I can do this for real. Was this something in adulthood or did, did you, were you doing this early on? Super early on. My mom um, is a great writer and taught me how to write like a cover letter and a self-addressed stamped envelope when I was really young so that I was submitting stories to professional magazines when I was 12. Like I like when I was 36, I sold my first story to Asimov's and I had been submitting to Asimov since I was 12. So, uh, uh, you know, Keep it, at it. They, they were, yeah, exactly. Keep at it. It, it might take a decade and a half uh, and be vaguely worth it. No, it's super worth it. Um, uh, so yeah, I did start pretty early on submitting them and I, I vividly remember getting, um, like one, I don't know if that, if it was just, they did this for everyone back then, but I got, I always got very, they were terrible, but they always got at least a sentence of like why they were being rejected, which I realize now is really special and um, uh, not to be taken for granted now. And at one point they're like, yeah, you keep sending us the same story. Like uh, this, this sounds like Lovecraft again, you know, you need to, it was a <laughs> very gentle, out. it was a very gentle, get your stuff together. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Would you? Uh, so yeah, I've been submitting. To, which you eventually to, did by going to Clarion too, but we'll get to that exactly. Eventually. But exactly. I want to talk a little bit about, and one of the reasons why I think this new book was really special for me, and we'll get more into that when we get serious about the blade between, is that for me as a writer, I'm very curious all the time about how the community in which writers grow up in or musicians like bands, for example, if people introduce like, you know, say, oh, David, you need to hear this new death metal band or this new hardcore band. The very first thing I always ask is where are they from, right? I always ask that. Nice. When writers are established to me, I, I, I'll do the same. I ask where they're from. We're gonna learn a lot during this interview, but especially during the book about Hudson, New York, which is slightly upstate from, from the city. Can you tell us about Hudson? Give us the brief introduction and, and, and your relationship with Hudson. Sure. So Hudson is like 114 miles straight up the Hudson River from New York City. Um, it is an old city. It was founded primarily by um, whalers um, during the Revolutionary War. Nantucket, which had been the sort of center for American whaling, was blockaded by the British. So many wealthy um, whaling investors moved their base of operations elsewhere, including to Hudson. So for years, that was sort of like the main industry of the city. Um, and my town has like monuments to whalers and on every street sign there's a little whale cartoon and it's on the state, the city seal. So it's a city that has this sort of great sort of noble uh, past. Um, it lost by one vote uh, when New York State was voting on its capital. It lost to Albany um, by one vote. And I did not know that. That's yeah, so like we have, like, we were legit. We're not legit now. Um, and it became like a big base of bootlegging operations. It was the prostitution capital of the, of the, of the state for many years. My, everyone in Hudson who's over, older than um, uh, 
you know, 40 has family stories of like, if you've been there for more than one generation, you have family stories about the whorehouses of Hudson and how like my grandmother was instructed like not to tell people she was from Hudson because they would assume that she was a prostitute. And one time she was riding the train and she was talking to a man when she said she was from Hudson, he got up and left because she thought uh, he thought that she was a prostitute. Um, and my, grand, my, my, my uncle who worked for my grandfather uh, at his butcher shop was making deliveries to the houses of ill repute and the madam would always say, you want to take it out and trade? And he would say, I'd love to, but my boss would kill me. Um, so, you know, it has this sort of like fascinating history, whaling, prostitution, um, like many sort of middle city, middle level cities in America, it fell on really hard times from the seventies on, um, deindustrialization and, um, you know, co companies offshoring most of their operations, a lot of factories closed. It was in a really impoverished place by the time I got there. I'm born in 1979. And by the 80s, it was a pretty dismal, poor, working class, deeply impoverished town. One of these many upstate prison towns where the prison is one of the largest employers um, and where a lot of small businesses were really struggling. Um, and the, the sort of like, um, recent history is that in the past 20 years, it's really transformed and um, a lot because it's so close to New York City, because there's a train station there and it's a two hour train ride to, to Midtown Manhattan, it's really bloomed. And all of these wealthy folks have moved up there buying second homes and opening up like arts institutions and galleries. And there were 65 antique shops on the main street at one point. Um, wow. So it's really been reborn in a in a way that's like a lot, unfortunately, like a lot of places, um, not necessarily super amenable to the needs of the folks who've lived there forever. Um, right. So yeah, that's the sort of maybe not so short history of Hudson. Yeah, we'll get more into it. But um, and we've talked on this podcast before about upstate New York when we had uh, Laird Barron on because Laird and I um, are both people that, um, I moved to upstate New York for a while. I lived in Syracuse during the 90s, second half of the 90s. Um, one of the things that Laird and I talked about was just how much deeper the history the rest of the state outside of New York City has that gets uh, often ignored. And there's parts of New York, <laughs> upstate New York, different parts of New York that uh, might as well be Appalachia. Exactly. As yeah, and some of the most beautiful, like the, between the Finger Lakes and the Adirondacks, it, it's just, um, there's some really beautiful stuff up there. But when you get to central New York or western New York, for example, too, are completely different worlds from even upstate in the east or the city. It's just, it's just a very interesting state. So I, I appreciated getting a picture of a city that I didn't know very well. I really do like the window into Hudson as it being part of your origin story as well, because I think where writers grow up say so much about um, who they are as artists. If you look at King and, and, and Maine, or if you look at um, Alabama and Robert McCammon or Berkeley and Ursula Le Guin, you know, these, these places play a role. And I know it's fictionalized because the character is not one-to-one Sam and Ronan aren't the same, but um, I do think it gives a window into your experience growing up there because it seems like, you know, you're trying to paint a picture of the city that you know, correct? Absolutely, yeah. There's, a, I mean, it's not one to one, but it's like it's like maybe like 0.97 to one. Like, just right. a, like his 
father's butcher shop and my father's butcher shop were both located at 310 Warren Street. Like the scene at the beginning where he's looking in the window is like a, like that's a description of what the store looks like now. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap there. Like we're both the son of a town butcher. Both of our father's butcher shops were put out of business by the arrival of Walmart. Um, so this is very truthful to the Hudson as I experience it, um, the one that I grew up in and the one that I see now. Um, obviously, it's still a construct of my imagination, and I'm sure lots of folks who grew up there or who've transplanted there would see it differently. But um, this, this is like, yeah, I agree that place is super important to writers, or at least to many writers. And um, you know, I couldn't. I moved away from Hudson as soon as I could. I couldn't wait to get out of there. But yet three of the four novels I've published have been set there. Um, it's right. very much a, a, a place um, that, that weighs heavily on me and where sort of like my whatever, it, that, that's the place that, that really feels like home, even though I've lived in New York City for now longer than I lived in, in Hudson. Um, mm -hmm. So... So yeah, uh, this is this is like my other books, like Art of Starving, is not a super uh, detailed or accurate Hudson, but this is this is the the most accurate. This is the most real Hudson I could I could do. Right, and it seems very well researched, and it looks. I I, I imagine you you went home and spent some time researching uh, the city because the history seems very detailed in here. Although I, I don't know, maybe that's just a part of. I know the history of my hometown pretty well <laughs> at this point too, but uh... I so I did I did do a lot of research and the Hudson Library, which is a phenomenal library, has a very good research collection and and so they were amazing and super helpful in the writing of this. Um, but I will say that like there were definitely cases where the research revealed that the actual history was different than the sort of like legend history or the folkloric history, like the way that whaling was explained to me growing up like it's 114 miles up the up the river from the sea there are no whales just you can't just like start yeah. whaling right and so so that that's sort of like a little bit of a conceptual leap that folks have to make and i think that people sort of explain that in different ways and so it was always imagined to it was always explained to me that the whales were sort of like dragged to Hudson and butchered there. And they were sort of like exhausted um, by being dragged there, which is not accurate at all. And of course, um, if you've read Moby Dick as I have, like the, the description in that book of how whaling happens is, is accurate, right? It's like, you know, they don't butcher the whales in Nantucket, they butcher them in the Sea of Japan or uh, the Indian Ocean or wherever they happen to be. Um, so no, no whales were actually butchered and processed in Hudson, but that's how, that's that's this that was the sort of legend that I had always received, and so when when the facts were different than the legend, I went with the legend just because I felt like that was more that that felt like better storytelling, more powerful myth making. So the, the I did do a lot of research. I did not feel myself fettered by it. Oh, good, yeah, yeah, and I should say um, I'm not going to talk about it a ton because I haven't. I just finished it last year, and I haven't really started looking for a home for it, but I just wrote my hometown novel uh, <laughs> recently awesome. and had the same process of going through and researching aspects of the town because, and what had happened and what kind of inspired my story is, is that um, the park that uh, all the punk rockers and weirdos used to hang out at in my hometown, and I had known this history, but I started telling people because they didn't, a lot of people didn't know that People's Park in my hometown existed because the clan had blown up a black owned business that had originally been in that spot. 
Hmm. And here for 20, 15, 20 years, punk rockers were hanging out in this spot and they didn't know the history of it. Wow. Part of the original inspiration was I want to use that history as part of a story and I want to build on it. And I had the same kind of process where I was learning what was true and what was legend. I stuck to much of the, the history of the clan and the violent events, how we interfaced with the, the ghosts of that um, became very different. And I think not being fettered by that is, is kind of really important because you're telling a story, but that, that process of, learning about your town and learning the history is so eye-opening. And it's, it's really interesting because there's this space uh, that when you're a townie who moves away, <laughs> right? This is your hometown and you know it. You, you know all the streets and you can get here and there, but you don't live there anymore and things are changing slightly. And there's this ghostly aspect to the town being sort of the same, but not quite the same, that it, it's, what I loved about this novel is I feel like this novel lives in that space of uncomfortableness that comes from returning home and returning home is so much a part of it. A lot of novels that do this, like something wicked this way comes, for example, the kids are still there, right? But coming home is such a huge part of this. Can you talk to me about the feeling of coming home to Hudson and, and did the novel, was it, was it always that, act of coming home and visiting that kind of spurred this story along. Yeah, I mean, you know, this there's a moment um, later in the book where Lily, the character who's sort of the stand-in for the the gentrifiers in general, she's like a young professional at the at the at the startup, um, the dot-com startup that that's based there. And she's sort of parked at um, a, she stopped at a stoplight and she makes eye contact with a townie on the sidewalk and there's like a moment of like she just feels like visceral hatred um and i was totally that townie like i totally had a moment where i was home um i was visiting my folks i moved away from hudson like 24 years ago but i have gone back probably once a month since so i'm there a lot um and you know i've seen it change i've watched it evolve um and that that sort of like question of like, I, this is mine. Like to me, this is home. This, like I own it. I, I feel like it's mine. It's the landscape of my, like where my father was like a, um, like a figure, like everyone knew my dad. Like I, I was recently on a, um, like a, a, an event with some folks from back home and like, they all had stories about my dad. Um, so like, I feel like a claim to this place, um, but so do they, so do the new arrivals, so do the people who are building something there. Just like I feel like New York City is my home, even though I didn't grow up here. So that to me is the tension of gentrification and the tension of, of the conflict um, that I was trying to explore here is that like, I feel like this is mine, but so does someone else. Um, and it seems like those claims are contradictory or that there should be conflict or tension between them. Um, and in many ways there is, but also, um, you know, both of them being true doesn't make either one untrue. Um, and that if we want to, like so much of what we think of as like, you know, urban planning, how cities work, how places um, are, is, is based on conflict and whose needs should be prioritized. And so the idea of like fighting for a future that works for everybody is something that's like super important to me. Um, and 
is really hard, is, is not a thing that comes naturally. And that's why there's so much, um, you know, why, you know, transformation of a neighborhood so often ends in displacement. So um, that, that sort of terrifying space between it's mine, but it's also mine. And we have to figure out what that means together is, is, is where the sort of like seed of the story is and where the sort of like supernatural metaphor becomes the reality of like, but what if there were monsters? Mm -hmm. Well, and it's funny too, because um, when you were writing this book, when I interviewed you last for Dickheads and you kind of hinted at, at what was going on with this one. And it's funny because from the moment you were talking about writing, you were talking about writing it. I was just like this the whole time you were talking about it. Like I couldn't wait to read this book. I was very excited because there were so many elements that were interesting to me. And, and, you know, as an animal rights guy and um, longtime um, financial donor to the sea shepherds and, nice. you know, like the, the, the idea of the, the haunting or the ghosts of the whales permeating the city was of course, very fascinating to me and very interesting to me. But what was funny is, is that, uh, I remember talking to a friend about this book and I said, well, it's about whale ghosts, but don't worry. I'm, I'm pretty positive. There won't be giant whale ghosts floating around the city. I think it'll take on a different, <laughs> a different form. And, and they do. It's less <laughs> about it. The, it's the manifestation of the violence and the oppression that these intelligent creatures like, go through and their connection to the history of this city that make them a supernatural force. Can you tell me about how you thought about that and how long was it? Is this something that was deeply in your mind as somebody who grew up in Hudson? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like I said, it's like, you know, you're sort of immersed in, um, in whales in Hudson and sort of like they're everywhere. Um, and I am an animal rights person. I, um, Next month, we'll be celebrating my 24th anniversary as a vegetarian. The, the, the idea that we, like this is, this is sort of like my main social justice writer, um, like conceit is that um, we are like oppression, like when we, when we like the violence that we wreak in the world, we bear the scars of that. It's not just that we are hurting the environment. We are hurting ourselves when that happens. And we are hurting um, when we destroy something beautiful like a whale. Um, that's like, there's a cost to us and who we are and our, and our souls for want of a better word. Um, so this was very much like, um, I want to imagine a world where there's consequences and where there's some form of justice, right? And in real life, unfortunately, justice is something of a, it's, it kind of doesn't exist, right? It's like humans attempt to create justice in the world, but you could argue that that that, that rarely it rarely happens, or when it happens, it happens imperfectly, or it's um, through the lens of racist institutions or whatever, right? Like, um, so fiction for me is a space where justice can exist, and so the idea that um, humans would be made to suffer for or pay the price for the violence that they wreak on the natural world is a, uh, is a recurrent one and one that I'm always trying to figure out. Um, so that was, that was the sort of spark here is that like we are, um, you know, there's a, there's a Buddha quote, you will not be punished for your anger, you will be punished by your anger. So like we won't be punished for our, 
our for our violence or our exploitation it will we will be punished by that i could probably unintentionally but you have whale spirits in two books in a row uh, <laughs> that's that's cool for whales <laughs> they, they got uh because there is kind of a killer whale like super uh, like i'm probably saying it wrong because it's been a while since i read blackfish city but uh but I recall there was some 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 um, spirit animal whaleness in there as well. <laughs> but, yeah, I had to I had to sort of like really think about what my next book is going to be and what the sort of like you know animal relationships are in a lot of my stuff, and I often try to think about what the what the sort of central relation non-human relationships are, and so I'm like, yeah, I really can't do whales again. It's like. You know, I love whales, but let's let's try to uh, uh, figure something else out. So I'm thinking that like a de-extincted saber-toothed tiger is where I'm is where I'm going next. <laughs> That'll be the spirit um, animal of the next book. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm not complaining because I love both books. But um, you know, you know, in a weird way, you know, both books spoke to me, you know, very deeply um, in different ways. And it's funny because Blackfish City in a lot of ways is more the kind of book that, you know, it's the science fiction. It's the kind of thing that I've been kind of more leaning towards. I'm, I'm a horror guy too. And I love the towny aspect of, of this one. So that that's part of it. But I do think the characters are really important in this book too. And I think if the characters weren't really richly drawn, the book wouldn't have worked as well. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the devising of the characters. Were, um, were the characters there from the beginning? Did the idea come first? Um, you know, what, what, what relationship do you have to with uh, the creation of these, these characters? Yeah, I mean, to me as a reader or as a watcher of storytelling, um, character is where it lives or dies. And like the best world building and um, plot crafting in the world can't really save a story if I don't care about the characters or if I'm not on board. And conversely, like I'll forgive a lot if you make me care about the characters. Like you can have a lot of problems um, with your book or movie or television show. So like, I often will have ideas that I can't really animate or figure out how to move forward with until I know who the characters are. And this originally was sort of like a short story that I was working on um, about a gay couple who go, like the one is from Hudson and, and he goes home with his boyfriend for the, the weekend and uh, experiences the sort of like, you know, is surprised by the gentrification and transformation of Hudson and um, there were whale ghosts, but I didn't really know who the characters were. Um, and it was sort of like a cool idea that hadn't found the right vessel. Um, so it wasn't until I could sort of like really, first of all, um, give myself permission to tell a story that is like really mine and comes from my own experience um, that that I could sort of like figure out what are the pieces here and and who are the humans who inhabit this? Um, how can we how can we tell that story best about somebody who um, is figuring out that he loves this place that he used to think he hate hated and and still does hate but also loves and who are the people that would sort of best help him see and understand and come on, come in conflict with that tension. And you know one of the things that comes out of the characters in this book is really obvious. We look at just how the horror community has progressed. Like in the early days, 
of the horror boom, it was really Clive Barker that that really was able to first kind of introduce LGBTQ characters in especially in short stories is where we first saw it. And eventually he was able to do that with, for example, um, Sacrament was, was, was one of the first uh, books to have uh, horror novels to have uh, LBGTQ um, character as, as the lead. But now it seems like, you know, with this novel, I, what's great is, is I, I don't feel people are surprised about this. It's just a natural thing. It, it, it's just one of those, it's not even an, a, an aspect that is being pointed out. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're promoting the book, which to me is a sign that, that we've made progress as a horror community. I don't know how you feel about that. I do. I do. I mean, I agree with that. But I also think that I am constantly, even as like a lifelong horror fan, I am always shocked at the pieces of queer horror history that I'm discovering that I, as a gay horror writer, didn't even know. Like I had never read Poppy Z. Bright before. Um, and, you know, I last year read Drawing Blood, which is now one of my favorite horror novels. And this is brilliant, Incredible. Um, brilliant novel by a gay trans man about these two, the, you know, a, a gay couple. And it's one of the, some of the best gay intimacy I've ever seen, one of the best gay love stories I've ever seen. And so definitely Clive Barker has been important, but then like I had never read Michael McDowell before and I just read one of his books. And so, you know, going back to Frankenstein, like queerness has always been in horror. It hasn't always been possible to see it that way. Um, and when it has been seen, it's often, rendered monstrous or the threat is the the gay like you think about like the bride of frankenstein as one of like the most important horror films of history but also like one of the gayest um uh so so yeah i i agree that like we've now reached a place where like queer horror has reached a critical mass and we can you know people are publishing lots of different stories and getting able to tell those stories and have them be celebrated but like you know, Stephen King was one of the first places that I ever encountered queer characters, and they didn't always get well treated. But they weren't ever, you know, it was it was it was uh, pretty. It was it was more progressive than I would have given credit for. The intention um, was there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and another uh, Nightmare on Elm Street too, for is a is an example too of uh, exactly exactly like queers have always been all over horror and using it to tell their stories and even when they've had to be in the closet about it or filter it through um you know the 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 veil of the monstrous um you know psycho like psycho is a very queer story and it's you know problematic but um it's it's there and it's something that like i think queer audiences have always like felt this little thrill of recognition um uh that uh horror did that other i, I think i think is like a leg up it has on that that horror has on on other genres that maybe um had you know the, the queerness is there but it hasn't been as um i would argue important mm -hmm. yeah and you you're right to point out poppy z bright um, not just Drying Blood, but Exquisite Corpse and Lost Souls, like all three were were um, groundbreaking Poppy Z. Bright horror novels, you know, were, were fun, fundamental in that way. But uh, so this novel too has macro and uh, macro issues and micro issues all over the place. Um, and that's one thing that I really appreciated about it. So you got issues of eviction and housing, corporate invasion, historical racism, the LGBTQ uh, experience and discrimination for growing up, class welfare. It's all 
um, the, the use of technology, um, dating, like these are all things that I saw that were here. How much of this is just organic from the process of, at the starting point of, I wanna tell a story about my hometown and how much of it, or how much of it was, I want to get this in or did it just happen organically? I would argue, and, and maybe some readers would disagree, but I feel like it's always organic, and and that and like you know the same the same could be said about Blackfish City that it's about the housing crisis, but it's about LGBTQ identity and it's about climate. You know, like once you start to unpack any one of these issues, you start to realize that they're not separate from. You know, like you can't talk about gentrification without talking about racism. Like racism is the sort of like soil in which gentrification can grow. It's the 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 thing that makes it possible for um, wealthy people to buy up property for a song um, because a community has historically been disinvested in. And that you know, like if a community was redlined, if you look at parts of Brooklyn where like historically black neighborhoods where banks would not give people loans, um, they have been gentrified much faster than areas that were not historically of color where like European immigrants could get, could own their own home, right? So you compare Astoria in Queens to, um, you know, Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn and they're very different stories. Um, so once, if, if you want to tell a story about your hometown and you want to start talking about gentrification, you're going to start to unpack these things. If you want to talk about why a town is homophobic, why you had to leave, um, you know, it's going to be very hard to tell that story without also talking about the fact that, like, you know, um, the historic disinvestment in these communities where the industrial base dried up and you have a large working class um, uh, uh, community who over the course of the past 50 years have sort of been fed this narrative of, of, of homophobia and heterosexism and misogyny and patriarchy as a tool to keep people divided and afraid um, and not fighting class, you know, fighting, fighting gender warfare instead of class warfare, fighting, you know, trying to cling to the male privilege that they might have instead of, um, you know, saying like the, 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 the real fight is against the people who are you know, the companies that are moving out of town and impoverishing us. So um, once I, once you start to like pull the thread, the whole thing starts to unravel and suddenly you've got 600 issues. And I could see how, you know, if I, you know, I always get readers who are leaving Goodreads reviews, which I try very hard not to read, but sometimes it's, it's really you can't tough help. To yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, talking about, oh, I got an agenda, they've got an ax to grind, why they were checking off boxes. And, you know, for them, maybe for folks who've never thought about these issues, and for whom these issues aren't real, because their privilege allows them to not live in a world, um, like, because misogyny is just normal to them. So like thinking about misogyny, and reflecting on it has been a privilege that they've had, you know, they, uh, confronted on the page and think, oh, this is, this is an issue novel. Well, like life is issues. And if you are, have um, never seen those narratives that I could see how they would feel um, tacked on. And, and, and if you've been poorly served by conventional storytelling, where it's like, if all you've ever read are white street, you know, uh, uh, cis um, authors, then I could see why talking about these things could feel weird. But to me, it feels organic. To me, it feels like, one story, not not one one issue, not many issues. Right, you're just reacting to things. You, you this is the way you see the world as an activist, as a person. So you're just reacting the way 
they may think you're checking off boxes, but you're just seeing the world the way you see it. And they just need to get over it as far as I'm concerned, because I like having the diverse voices and I like reading the books where I see somebody is looking systematically at what's going on. And maybe that's just the activist in me, but it's one of the things about your work that I appreciate. So they can, you know, Goodreads, reviewers, whatever. I, I look at a little bit of that after I finish my review. And then sometimes I might go back and say like, if there's something that people are saying that I really can't stand, I will sometimes respond to them in my reviews. Then, you, then you're doing the Lord's work because I always want to tell people about themselves, but refrain because it's just not good practice and it'll just get your, it's bad for your blood pressure um, and makes people upset and including you. So right. thank you for that. But I will not, I, can, I will not be entering that fray. I wouldn't do it for my books. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I do it for somebody else. That, and that is appreciated. And that I feel is, I'm hoping I'm putting it out to the book of sphere that someone will eventually get back on, on my books, um, you know, at some point. And, uh, but the, the thing about it is, and I, a good friend of mine recently read or read your book before, before I did. And I know I mentioned this in the review. Well, he enjoyed the book and thought it was really well written and, and said so. He said that, you know, his reaction was, wow, I, I, it didn't work for me quite as much as it did for you. He and I talked about it for a little bit and I wondered why I had such a, a, a better experience with the book than he did. And what I came to figure out was, is that this, this friend of mine has never, he's lived in the same city his whole life. And he's a, he's a townie here in San Diego. He hasn't moved away and come back, maybe for short periods of time, but he couldn't relate to some of the aspects of the book that I related to, not just in, in that I enjoyed the story because he said, I thought it was well-written. I liked it. I liked the story, but it just didn't knock my socks off like it did me. Cause I'm sitting there going, oh, it was so great. <laughs> and he was yeah. like, and, and we just tried to figure out what the difference was. And that's what I think it came down to is because I think this is a book that for people who have had this experience, it'll be a much stronger experience. And it's not to say that other people won't enjoy it, but I think that if you have gone away and come home and experienced that weird transition, the book is gonna to speak to you, you know, very, very deeply. Anyways, I wanted to say that, but before we get into spoilers, just in general, because um, I'm gonna do a spoiler warning and then we're gonna talk about the actual writing and construction of the book. Um, how do you how do you explain this book? Because a lot of times I know it's reductive to do that. It's this meets that um, thing, but that's a lot of times how you convince somebody to read a book. And so as writers, like we're constantly forced to reduce our work to these kinds of things. How do you, what's your sales pitch for The Blade Between? Because I know for me, I compare it to the work of like um, something wicked this way comes or something something like that. Uh, which that is one of my all-time favorite novels. So that is a hugely meaningful comparison. So thank you. Um, um, I, I would say that this is like needful things by way of, I don't know. It's a good question. I should, I should, I should, I should be pitching. I should have my comps at the ready. Um, but this, there's a lot of Stephen King here. And um, I did actually reread needful things as I was writing this because the mechanics of that book are so 
intricate and well done of like how you go from like a bunch of little things, a bunch of little of individual people doing things to like the catastrophe that it builds to is so well done. And I wanted to make sure I wasn't copying it too closely um, since I had read it so long ago and, and, and probably internalized it. Um, this like I the way I describe it is like gen, if you're a horror fan you know the trope of the town with a secret so this is gentrification comes to the town with a secret if like you know people started up buying up homes in the in the in the Shirley Jackson town where the lottery takes place what would happen like how would that mess with the supernatural or spooky or horror element would like the new arrivals be exempt from the lottery would they would the locals do it on a day when like everyone's out of town would they be the only ones to like would the locals turn on the town or the the townies turn on the new arrivals and stone them instead like like how would that change the dynamic and 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 so um yeah it's a it's a story about ghosts and gentrification and whales and um you know, hate. I mean, this is like, I haven't really talked about this um, here, but like, this is a, this is a book that comes of me marinating in not just four years of hate, you know, decades of hate. Hate has always been the sort of like engine of American politics, the sort of like thing by which the right wing can, um, you know, trick people into um, going against their own interests. Um, so the idea that like, people could be manipulated um, through social media, through technology um, to do horrible things is, is something I think a lot about. And, and you cer certainly saw that in, 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 the, in America on, on January 6th with the Capitol uprising. Um, this idea that people who have grievances and rage and anger that has been stoked by liars or manipulators or or just evil people who want to achieve an evil end and then mobilized into doing something concrete can lead to like mayhem and murder um is that's been on my mind a lot so it is sort of like for this moment where we're all angry and seething in our anger and that that anger can be um very easily turned into into violence and it is every day we see it all around us but um, you know, this is the sort of funhouse mirror version of like, what if that was taken to like a really horrific uh, climax? That's that's well said. All right, so um, I want everyone to go out and read the Blade Between. If you and then if you haven't read it, pause here, read it, come back because uh, we're gonna just take a few minutes to talk about like the actual like a uh, uh, like free for all where we can say whatever we want. Because we're going to assume the people reading beyond this moment <laughs> have read the book. I want to start with, I want to circle back to the needful things comment. When I had Stephen Graham Jones on, we talked at length about, um, he's a believer that if you're going to write a werewolf novel, you should read a bunch of werewolf novels before you do it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. If you're going to write a, a slasher one, you should read some slasher ones to there's nothing wrong with that to get the vibe, get the thing that you want to do with it. So I think it's great that you went back and reread Needful Things. What about that structure did you want to bring or the kind of thing that you learned from Needful Things did you want to bring to the structure of the Blade Between? And it seems like it's to do with the various storylines coming together, correct? So that is correct. But to me, it's the opposite. It's not I mean, yes, of course you read and you get inspiration and you get ideas and, and it seeds in your, in your, 
in your brain. But for me, it's not about what do you do that other people have done? It's what do you not do that other people have done, sure. right? Ted Chang has this great um, analysis where he talks about genre as a conversation. And a lot of the times when you have non-genre writers, like literary fiction writers who write a genre novel, the issue isn't like that they're not allowed to do that. They're totally allowed to do that. But the problem comes when they haven't read a lot of the genre. And so they make a lot of, they do a lot of things that we've seen a thousand times. So if genre is a conversation, if you just join the conversation, you might say some stuff that you think is real smart and brilliant, but to everyone else in the conversation who's been having it for decades, they already know all this stuff. That was done 10 years ago. That was done 20 years ago. So the Sparrow you, by Mary Dorian Russell is a great example. It's a really great book, but it does a lot of things that science fiction writers have learned a long time ago not to do. Exactly. So, so for me, it's more about like, I don't want to, I don't want to do what I would love to write a, a werewolf novel, but I don't want to write mongrels, even though it's the greatest werewolf novel ever written. Um, you know, I want to, I want to say, this is what that book does really well. And let me see what my fresh take is. So right. for me, rereading Needful Things was more about like, um, you know, if I'm going to have these two housewives do a knife, like, let me not have two housewives have a knife fight in the middle of the street and disembowel each other like because that's been done right so right. so yeah it's you read a lot as much to 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 not do what's already been done as as to, to see what what's been done and what works well when you get to one of the coolest moments in the book and i kind of spoiled this in my my review but uh one of the coolest moments in the book is that one aspect of this is that you created um out of the, you know, this, this was something that we both as people who have spouses that we've been with for 20 years had to learn a lot about uh, from other people, which is how the youngins, the young bloods date these days. And they do it a lot of times through these apps, which are kind of foreign to those of us in long-term relationships because they didn't exist when we were doing it. Um, so you have one, this uh, phenomenal scene where one of the main characters creates this avatar on this um, dating app, uh, Grinder, where um, basically it's it's like a hookup app. I loved this idea that, and and, and I threw this out to to one of my coworkers. Like um, I was, I told him, "Hey, I'm reading a book that has a Grinder ghost." Um, <laughs> you know that. Nice. So that's also that's also a good way to that's a good elevator pitch for this. Right, book. right. <laughs> I said this book has, has a Grinder ghost, and he his, his immediate reaction was. I want to know more. And I said, yeah, you know, the book, um, the idea that um, what I really liked about that, and I almost felt like you could build a whole novel on this or, or, or a film, is the idea that you create this persona online to, you know, which is like kind of the ultimate persona of the closeted person. And then it becomes real and it gets out of control and it's doing things that you can't do. And if it, it, and so I really love this aspect of the book, but I felt it was something that I didn't want to talk about before spoilers because it's, it, it's such a great reveal in the book. Um, it, it's a fantastic reveal. It got me really good. Like um, I, I, it was one of those moments where I went, Oh, Sam. <laughs> uh, um so can you tell me about where this came from? Like, am I on to something about like the the origins of the grinder ghost as it were? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you. I'm glad to hear that works. And now that you say that, I realize I should have reread the dark half. 
um, by Stephen King while I was rereading shit so I don't copy it by accident because um, that's one of my favorite Stephen King books. Um, but, you know, to me, there's something profoundly uncanny about technology. And that's sort of what motivates me as a writer often, especially as a science fiction and horror writer is like, you know, radio is creepy. There's something creepy and un like, like it's unnatural. Like it's almost supernatural, right? It's like, we're familiar with it and it makes sense to us because it's part of the real world. But the idea that like, you know, like the ringing phone in the middle of the night, it's like this, the invasion of someone very distant, um, voices being carried by wires across unthinkable distances or now being carried by like signals in, in space. Um, so the, the, that's always been something that's very scary to me, very terrifying, especially now when, you know, so much of our, of our life um, is lived by interacting with people that we don't know exist, right? They, we don't know if they're real. We don't know if they're, a, if it's a catfish situation, if they're a bot, um, you know, that's as true when you're ordering pizza um, uh, or talking to a banker or getting customer service as it is, you know, a, a dating app or whatever. So that, that foot, that fundamental creepiness and the idea that it's so easy to make something up that you can lie with such um you know, with so much distance that it's very possible to, to get away with it and people won't know and you can sort of masquerade as anyone. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that always interests me when we think about like fictions and masquerading and creating a persona is like it takes on a life of its own and, and horror is very good for dramatizing that. Um, and actually this is... Um, this is like a, you know, a lot of my work is interlinked and there's, and all takes place in a shared universe. So uh, Tom Minnick, who is the, the, the creation, the sort of grinder ghost um, has appeared in my work before. I wrote a, I wrote a, a short a novelette called Angel Monster Man, which was published by Nightmare Magazine about, um, you know, in the, in the eighties during the AIDS crisis, there was a, there was a lot of gay writers who passed away leaving trunk trunks full, like, you know, many manuscripts that never sold, like, you know, um, and, and it was all orphaned and, you know, it was in left in the hands of parents who burned it or partners who didn't know what to do with it. Um, and so these, you know, three gay writers sort of create a pseudonym under which to publish all of this art and work and writing that they've gotten from their friends. And then of course, you know, it, they name it Tom Minnick and it comes to life and then it's a horror story. So horror ensues. Um, but yeah, that idea that like, you know, there are consequences to our, to our fabrications, to, to the, to the, what we put out there digitally and, and the fictions we create. So um, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it. I'm terrified of it. It's, it's definitely something I, I keep revisiting that the sort of uncanniness of technology. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it really, really worked. Um, and and that aspect of uh, of, of the book was um, was the one that I guess I was kind of like primed for some of the whale ghost stuff. So that that stuff kind of took me by surprise, and I I really appreciated that aspect of it. And uh, it's one of the things that I dug there. So now I will say I will say actually on that point that this is one of those cases where like a great editor is really helpful because that the whole like relationship between the whales and Tom Minnick was originally much more complex. And it was much more like there are two primal, there's like a, another force that's equal to and opposite to the whale ghost that's at war with it. And humans are caught in sort of a proxy war. And it was very complicated and didn't really work. And so like that had to be scaled back significantly. So um, yeah, if that works at all, it works because my editor, Zach Wagman at Echo Press is amazing. 
Well, no, no, that's that's a really great thing to hear in spoilers. And, and um, you know, uh, recently I, there was a post on some, it was on Twitter where they said, what, what superpower do you wish all writers could suddenly have? And I, and I said, um, the ability to listen to editors better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I think uh, it helps having the right editor too, but who understands the story, but did this, was this heavily outlined or was it, are you an outliner or a pantser or? Um, I'm no, a half, no. I'm a half pantser. I like have one pant leg on and I'm hopping around. Um, okay. Like I'll start writing an outline and have every intention in the world of doing an actual outline that's detailed and, and good uh, and makes sense. And then I'll be like, but I don't know who these characters are. So I can't figure out what's gonna happen after the first third. So let me write an exploratory chapter to figure out the characters. And then like 300 pages later, I'm like, right, I've arrived at the end of my outline and I don't know what's gonna happen. So um, I start to outline and often I will do a, have a valiant effort, but then either stop or scrap my outline um, and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm a religious outliner, but I also um, uh, usually with every act of the story, I redo the outline once I like get to know the characters and all that. So uh, that's a very good compromise that literally never occurred to me. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you see like with my books, you'll see um, there's a the outline I start with, and then when I finish the first act. There's the outline that goes to, to the next act. And then usually there's a third outline where I just start over and I re-outline the end. And a lot of times the last, I don't know, five or six chapters, I don't even look at the outline anymore. That's when I'm like, that's when I can go and just, you know. But one of the things that I feel is important about the outline is, or, or you know, God bless Uncle Steve, I, I love Uncle Steve, but when he says outlines are soulless, it drives me nuts because not everyone has the privilege of being able to write every day and pick up where they left off the day before. Some of us might not be able to get back to the novel for a couple of days at a time. And the ability to go back and say, okay, where am I? What do I have to do next? It, when you say when you say Uncle Steve, is that a Stephen King quote? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm kidding about Uncle Yeah. I'm saying Steve, Stephen King because he's I know he's he says outlines are soulless and it, it just it hurts my hurts my heart when he says yeah that. I also think that like on some level Stephen King is like a storytelling savant and like you read it and you're like the plot beats are so good and so like it's always surprising it's always exactly when it needs to happen that like dude you're on some next level like we no one else can like be at that level like um, I'm not saying he's. But perfect. I will say, I will say, on Sleeping Beauties, there was a reveal that happened that, when I read it, I said to myself, "There's no fucking way that was <laughs> that had to be outlined because it was so well set up." And then I found out that he and Owen had written it already as a screenplay uh-huh. before they novelized it, and that, sir, is an outline. There you go. And uh, so I, I will I will call bullshit on that. Because <laughs> I think um, it was funny because when I read it, I was like, there's no way that happened without an outline. There's but you're right. He is kind of a savant in storytelling. It is kind of a like point. we all have our strengths and it's useless to be to say like, oh, this method that works for you, this 
bizarre creature will work for me. Like, you know, right. we all got to figure out what works for us. The interesting comparison with Stephen King and uh, I always, him and F. Paul Wilson, because um, the only thing that matches the Dark Tower for the level of like career spanning interconnectedness is F. Paul Wilson's Secret History. And I just recently read the additional book he added into the adversary cycle. So now it's book, it's added to this 37 book saga. You know, he's an outliner and he does things by outline because he does things by days. He writes everything. He wants to know when they woke up, when they went to sleep. He has to know that. As far as part of the storytelling, I don't feel like necessarily everybody needs to know that, but he does. And that's very important to his process. And and I think each writer kind of figuring out how they do things is so important. Yeah. That being said, so one leg in, one leg out on the plate between the research had to... How much did the story change once you started to do the research? Did, did it change much or did it, or was a lot of the research confirming the path that you wanted to go? It didn't change much. And one of the things that I've learned about myself as a writer is that I'm actually quite bad at research in that once I start, I just won't stop. And I'll just be like so interested in everything that I just want to put it all on the page. And suddenly it's not a chapter, it's a Wikipedia page. So I don't typically, like I tend to like sort of like leave placeholders, like insert non-bullshit here. You know, obviously I'm always open to surprises and information that I get while researching often will um, change the course of things, but uh, I try not to let that happen just because otherwise, again, I'll just be going on and on um, about about things that I'm fa suddenly fascinated by that other people probably won't be. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I, I, I see that. Um, you know, it's funny because um, when I made the comparison to, to something wicked this way comes, the reason I did that, well, it's the small town horror. It's the, um, it's the connection to the place that you grew up. It's, it's those aspects of it. The stories are different, obviously, but it's the vibe and the feeling that, that, that I connected to. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, something wicked just came to my head. Um, but I see the Stephen King thing now. Um, and I like how you said that you kind of dialed back some of the, the interconnectedness of the, the, the two storylines to, to streamline it. What, were, what was the biggest challenge that you found working on this story and, and how did you solve it? Big question. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that, you know, I have done, like I have now written a young adult a young adult novel, a science fiction novel, a young adult fantasy, like, and now a horror slash thriller. And like, for me, I just love, um, I read a lot of genres. I love a lot of genres and every genre has its own sort of specialness and its own rules and figuring out those rules and, and, and figuring out what, like really figuring out like what does horror do well and how does it do it is super fun and exciting for me, but also very challenging. So you know, how do you tell a good thriller? It is not the same as telling a thrilling, like ha having a science fiction novel that has thriller elements. Um, you know, the, 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 the kind of complexity of like multiple players achieving one thing, like, you know, a scheme, a con, a plan, like we have this plan to carry out in Hudson um, is hard. And so um, I always like trying new things and trying new challenges. And, and so, yes, a thriller, 
a horror novel, they are really special and wonderful and, and in a different way. And writing them is wonderful in a different way than writing a young adult fantasy or a science fiction novel. So that was, you know, that was the fun. That was the most fun and also the most challenging. Mm -hmm. And figuring out how those beats fit with the story that you want to tell. And, 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 um, and it's great because I think, um, obviously I gave the book five stars. I think you nailed it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I think as far as the suspense beats and the moments that were, that were really scary, the, um, the phone call is coming from inside the house part with the, with the, um, with Tom Minnick being, uh, 25 feet away, which is, which is, if people don't know, that's a feature of these dating apps is that they can tell you how far away a person is based on where they're logged in. And, and so it was a great modern adaptation of, of that idea is, is that, um, this creation that they, that, that Ronan thought he, that he had made and it kind of like set the ball rolling and then found out that it was acting on its own. You know, that's a frightening thing too, is like, I've started this ball rolling down the hill and now I can't stop it. And that was, that was one of those interesting, um, or one of the elements of the book that really worked well for me. All right. Um, Sam, is there, um, anything else spoiler wise, something that, um, really, feel very proud of that you were able to pull off in the book or something that you, that, that, um, you know, you can gush here. It's a safe space <laughs> to, to feel proud of the work that you did. Uh, I don't know if it's pride, but one of the things that I was really excited about is, you know, I've spent many years as a community organizer working on issues of gentrification and it is really hard and really depressing and victories are far and few between and small and you might win something at great cost after many years that will have extremely limited impact. So, um, and, but, but also like there's a toolkit to how you do it. And, you know, um, if you are committed to nonviolent democratic, um, you know, participatory democracy, then um, there's a lot of things that are off the table. So it was fun to tell a story where all those things were not off the table and where characters could engage in illegal activity and, um, you know, really go nuts because one of the things that happened while I was working on this book was I was reading about the Cambridge Analytica whistleblowers uh, story about how Cambridge Analytica was created and like our adversaries are not playing by the rules. They are not bound by legality. They are not letting themselves be limited by what is ethical. Um, so, you know, obviously I'm not saying that we shouldn't either. I'm just saying it's fun to say like, what if we did all the fucked up shit that they did? Um, and, and how would that change the game? So um, there's a little bit of wish fulfillment of like, let's imagine a different kind of, of, of activism. I'm not saying it's one that we should have in real life. It's just that it's, you know, fiction is a safe space to play around with these, these things. Oh, and that reminds me of one of the most heartbreaking moments in the book. And look, listen, as somebody who, um, I just lost my father like just over a year ago. And um, uh, thankfully it was, right before all the COVID stuff happened. So the family was able to get together and all that stuff. And, and, um, but I had to take care of my father. So a lot of the aspects also that I, that rang true to this book was, uh, Ronan dealing with his elderly and, and, and not exactly functioning father anymore, you know, cause I had to go down that path a little bit too. And, and one of the most heartbreaking moments of the book, and I didn't get this into the book review, but I, de I definitely want to put this out there for the people that are listening and for you is, um, one of the most heartbreaking moments of the book for me is the scene where Ronan, knows that he's trying to do something that would further his father's 
feelings and beliefs, but he has to kind of play the short-term game that he's not following his father's wishes. And the woman that was his father's caregiver is so disgusted with him, but he can't say anything. And God, that part was gut-wrenching and hard. That was um, uh, one of the one of the best moments of the book. And I almost forgot to mention it. I'm really glad I thought of it because that book was really, or that part of the book was very effective, hit me in the feels. And um, I feel it was one of the best moments of the book. But I think probably very few people are going to point to that. But I want to point to that because it was enough that I dog-eared the page. I just couldn't figure out how to get it into the review without without spoiling it. It was enough that I dog-eared the page and I reread that scene um, because I thought it was so effective and so well done because I just, I felt Roman's, uh, uh, Ronan's frustration in that moment. And I felt the woman's frustration at him. Uh, I think her name's Marge. Um, but I, I felt the frustration of, of characters on both sides. And that was an incredible scene. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that scene. No, thank you for saying that. And I'm sorry for your loss. And my father passed away in 2015 after a long illness in which we all, you know, were helping with providing care. And it's super, super hard and super shitty. And, um, you know, uh, this that, that's something that's played out a lot in a lot of my fiction. So um, often I'll find it in a story that I didn't even realize I was putting in there. So obviously this was, a, was very intentional in this novel because um, there's a lot of overlap between Ronan and his father and me and my father. But, um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, yeah, and it's it's funny because um, I remember uh, around the time that Star Trek Picard came out, there were people who were saying that they didn't want to see older Picard. And I was like the opposite. I was like, as somebody who watched a parent age, I thought it was so delightful to see this character that I loved and watched for years become an older person. I'm not so sure about where we're going from that storyline now, but, uh, um, but I appreciated that. And I appreciate that aspect of, of this book. Um, but I know you're a Star Trek fan too. So, uh, um, you know, it's, um, it's the, the, the point of comparison here that's interesting is um, with a different Patrick Stewart character, because I actually refused, like, while I agree, I love the fact that Picard did a great job with, um, you know, exploring that of like someone preserving their dignity and struggling to like, you know, age, um, like, I actually refused to go see Logan, even though I knew it was going to be like, everyone said it's amazing. I'm sure it's amazing. I just can't watch like, Professor X deteriorate and die. Like, uh, I get that. I get the concern. I get the, the, where people are coming from. But I did really love Picard. Um, not as much as I love Discovery, but that's a separate uh, 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 podcast conversation, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to start, talk Star Trek with you sometime, too, just awesome. out, of, out of fun. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I could talk about Star Trek all day, so we better stop that now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Sam, I appreciate that. I just really love this book. Uh, what do you got coming up next? Like, what are you working on? Anything uh, you want to give us a preview of? You know, I have some short, I had like four short stories come out in January, which was super weird and accidental, um, including a short story called Let All the Children Boogie about my favorite David Bowie song, uh, Starman, which came out in tour.com. Um, but as far as bigger picture projects, I'm really letting stuff germinate and working on some bigger projects that I am really taking my time with um, and not trying to rush into another novel just yet. So um, stay tuned for fun on that front. 
Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I've been. I've been doing the long gestation thing here lately too. I've got a couple things percolating in the nice. Hopefully soon um, uh, territory, and so I know how that feels. But um, but yeah, I uh, really appreciated this book. Um, I hope people will check it out. Where can people find you, um, interact with you? I'm, my website is samjmiller.com. I'm on Twitter at SentenceBender. I'm on Instagram at sam.j.miller. I'm all over. <laughs> I spend way too much time on both those places. Um, and The Blade Between, you can find at fine, upstanding, independent booksellers everywhere or bookshop.org. Yeah, and um, here in uh, San Diego, shout out to Mysterious Galaxies because I know they carry it. And I, I love that. I love them very much and hopefully we'll be um, visiting them soon. Oh, uh, the new location is great. Awesome. And, and it's in bike riding distance to my house, which ah. is like the, um, the best. You're living best. the dream. The only thing better than biking in San Diego is biking to a bookstore in San Diego. <laughs> and uh, do it often. And, um, you know, during the early days of the lockdown, Rob was holding down Mysterious Galaxies by himself and doing all the mail outs. Oh, wow. And um, it was funny because I, I joked with him about that, um, how great it was for him to be able to sit alone <laughs> in the store with all those books. Yeah. Just get the vibe of it all. Um, but yes, uh, Mysterious Galaxies is a great place to pick up the Blade Between. And so locals, please do that. Um, and uh, uh, follow Sam's work. Also read Blackfish City. It's great. Um, and uh, I guess on some days I would say I like Blackfish City better and some days I'd like the Blade Between because they're both great and uh, for different ways. I'm glad to see you writing full-length horror. I hope, to, I hope you'll do more horror in the future. Um, but of course I like your science fiction too. So, uh, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you for reading and this was great. I, I always love chatting with you and let's, let's do this again sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, let's do it on, uh, uh, on a, um, uh, open topic with some books, um, in the future, um, maybe, uh, one of the panels in the future. Uh, Sam, thanks for joining me and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for having me.